Hello, welcome to the Leading for Resilience podcast, where we ask senior decision makers to share their thinking on what kind of leadership builds resilience in this time of perma-crisis. I'm Shazre Cumberhill, Director for Strategy and Impact at Resilience First. And I'm Peter Willis, based in Cape Town, a senior associate of Resilience First and the founder of Conversations That Count. Today, we're joined by Martin Link, Executive Director for Resilience First and former Chief Strategy Officer at Wood PLC. Martin, welcome. Thank you, Shazri and Peter. It's great to be here today. So, Martin, what we want to do today is hear your thoughts on our core question for this podcast series, namely, what is now being asked of leaders, particularly in the private sector, as we collectively face a rising tide of crises, some of them truly existential in character. But first of all, we'd like to hear about your rather unconventional journey from being a laboratory scientist through to leading a corporate strategy team and on to, and I'm sure I've missed out some important staging posts towards your current role in charge of resilience first. So who are you really, Martin? Thanks, Peter. That's a great, a great question to start with. And so, yeah, I always describe myself as a scientist um, by, by training. That's where I began studying biology, actually, human physiology all those years ago, and looked at diabetes, got a job in a consulting company and ended up looking at the pharmaceutical industry for a very long time and really enjoyed that and then moved into oil and gas in 2011 and built, as you said, a corporate strategy team. So I'm a mixture of scientist, strategist, uh, you could say climate activist as well, and uh, really passionate about making a difference and having tried that in the corporate sector and now working on it in the not-for-profit sector. And so I think there's various things that come together in that in that background, but I have a, a love of data combined with storytelling. So that kind of creativity and robust data, how do you kind of communicate the biggest uh, challenges and how do you drive action in a way that really resonates with people? I think that's something I've really honed in on over the last few years. Can you say something a bit more about that um, that resonates with people? I get the, I, I, I understand the interest in assembling data in complex situations. Example that springs to mind is when I was looking at the uh, energy transition a few years ago now and doing some scenario work. And we looked at what would the energy industry be like in 15 years' time. This was going to 2035. And so we did all of these. Uh, analysis of energy consumption, production, renewables, uh, percentage of total power uh, uh, capacity, et cetera, et cetera. And we got this huge spreadsheet and then we wrote four scenario reports off the back of it. And uh, it was at this point I was speaking, I had a chance to speak at Offshore Europe in 2019. And I realized that this, you know, all these charts and slides, they weren't really cutting it with people. You know, they weren't really really resonating you know we've all seen the the lines that we should that we should be on in terms of greenhouse gas production emissions and so i was like how do i connect with people at an emotional level and uh, i'd been going to some conferences where there was oil and gas executives talking about their kids and how none of their kids wanted to go into oil and gas and this was something of an existential crisis for them where they're like you know how, how could this happen and as i was reflecting on this i thought ah if I can use the voice of a child to speak to these executives, I think I can get through. And so in the end, what I did was I took each scenario and for each of the four, I wrote a persona 
where they were an imaginary person who was born around the time of the current day, but would be 18 in 2035. And through each of the scenarios, I basically wrote a story of their life over those 15 years um, and what kind of world they grew up in and what their life was like by the time they were 18. And it really, really worked. And each day at Offshore Europe, I told two of these stories. And uh, the first day I told two stories that were unfortunately, we didn't hit, our, it hit the Paris Accord targets and the worlds that we created were not particularly warm and fluffy. I, I said to him at the end, after I told the, the story of, um, I think it was Tamsin and uh, Isabel, and I said, well, if you want the good news, you've got to come back tomorrow. Because <laughs> that's the day when we'll be looking at the one scenario where we do actually hit the Paris Accord, and that was Sophie. And uh, yeah, I kind of left them with that challenge of what kind of decisions, you know, and, and what kind of world do we want to make for our children? And what decisions are we prepared to make now that makes that world for them in the future? And uh, when I talk about resonating with people, that's what I think about is that moment when I was in the basement of the exhibition centre in Aberdeen in this energy transition hub, speaking to 60, 70 people about what their kids are going to be like in, in 2035. And uh, yeah, I think it, it was pretty powerful. What I'm hearing there is you're placing the human imagination, in this case, the imagination of your the leaders who have the power to make these decisions right at the heart of the possibility of change is that they have to actually, their imagination needs to be ignited. And one way to do that, of course, is through the most personal things for them, their family and their, their children. I wanted to pick up on this idea about emotional responses. Do you feel, Martin, that there is a place for emotion in business and business decision making? I definitely do, I think. It's interesting being an analyst and trying to get people to look at, you know, I've spent my career getting people to study charts, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time producing really nice charts and graphs. And I think for a long time, I believed that people, you know, if they saw the data, you know, they would say, oh, the line's going down. Therefore, we need to, oh, the line's going up. We need to do something. And having done that for a, a good few years, I think what you realize is that Data is important, but it's only a small part of the decision-making process. Um, it's like going to buy a car, isn't it? You know, we kind of, you know, we look at the, you know, what's the brake horsepower, you know, and what's the speed zero to 60 and what size of engine it is, is it? But really, we've probably decided if we're going to buy that car within the first five seconds of seeing it in the showroom. And we're, now we're just justifying it to ourselves. Uh, you know, it's definitely, definitely value for money. And uh, and so I think for, for business people, in the in the boardroom and in the C-suite, you know, there is that balance of having data, but you never have all the data, right? And I remember when I first started getting exposed to the C-suite in, in Wood, where I was working, one of the people there, the CFO said, we're here and our job is to exercise our judgment. And that really struck me, actually, as, as a fairly young uh, professional and these very senior people saying, we don't have all the facts, we don't know everything, we need to use our discernment and our judgment. And that's, where I think, where emotions comes in, where you um, have to make decisions between various options and everybody's got emotional biases towards certain, based on our beliefs and our background, um, the kind of future we want to see. And so I think all we can really do is try and be aware of those emotions in ourselves and others 
Um, and try, if we're trying to elicit change in the world and in business, I think we do need to identify what those emotions are and how do we, you know, not create fear, uh, but actually create create that aspect of hope and optimism, excitement and uh, enthusiasm about what could be. But yeah, you definitely don't want to be manipulating emotions, but you want to identify them and build on them. And I think that's what what I, I saw. I saw kind of an opportunity to kind of do that. And I think now we're we're at a different point now. You know, that was 2019. Um, the emotional kind of environment is quite different now. I think it's more tense, more stark. There's much more urgency, perhaps more desperation amongst different people. And so what you what you're kind of if you're looking at the emotional landscape in business and in outside of business. Uh, it's probably heightened at the moment, I would say. Do you think that's a result of the last three years and what a lot of businesses have had to go to navigate? Or is it also, is there an element of a better understanding of what's to come? Oh, great question. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably both. I think if I think back to before COVID um, and the Ukraine war, I think I, I would have said that we developed four scenarios for the energy transition and the kind of the one that we were hoping we would achieve would be tailwind where you had a high degree of global solidarity. So the world was really pulling together behind the Paris Accord. And then also you had a rapid deployment of technology. And I felt like we were kind of in a tailwind world and as that kind of momentum built and people remember people took to the streets to demonstrate. I don't know if you remember that back in 2019 and September 2019 actually was the front cover of The Economist was the climate stripes, which was a very profound image. I used that. We had the Wood Conference the week after the top 200 leaders, and I used that front cover of The Economist to, to challenge people to change. We had people on the streets striking. It felt like there was a real moment. Uh, you know, the US had come back into the, the Paris Agreement, and it felt like anything was possible, and then COVID hit, and then we had the Ukraine war. and now. Wow, I mean, we've got supply chain issues, we've got war, we've got strikes. It seems to me now like the the last three years has really challenged our aspirations around climate leadership and adaptation and resilience and mitigation and given us a whole host of near-term issues that are very, very challenging. So, Martin... We're getting quite deeply into the core issue we want to discuss with you, which is this question of what you think, particularly from your position in Resilience First, where you're working with a whole range of companies on this question of uh, what it means to become resilient. And the question we're asking is what, what is actually being asked of leaders? You've, you've painted an interesting picture of the this shift from sort of pre-2018 to now and people's focus on the, the future, how would you translate that into demands on leadership? Yeah, I think there's, it's a really interesting time where uh, you've, we're seeing the really the, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think the almost the end of the target setting phase where we've come up with these pledges and targets and, you know, it's kind of like at a, as a big banner for the world to get behind. It was on one level been very successful, you know, initiatives like the Race to Zero are collecting thousands of companies behind that pledge. 
a lot of governments getting behind 1.5. So we've kind of been target driven, I would say, Peter, over the last few years in terms of let's do this. You know, it's almost like running a marathon, you know, 26 miles to go. Let's kind of, we can, if we encourage each other while we're running, we can keep each other going to the end. Oh, just a bit faster. So there's been this sense of we're in this together and let's try and, you know, hit this really, really challenging target and we can do it if we, if we uh, remain positive. And so I think in terms of resilience, you know, that's, it's, it's a really, really interesting question because at one level, you know, targets can be very motivating, right? If I want to lose weight and I'm saying, oh, I'm losing, you know, a pound, a couple of pounds every few days, it's a real enabler to progress. So if you're seeing small steps in the right direction, it can really motivate people to keep going. However, on the other hand, there can be this kind of psychology of defeat or where, you know, if you're losing ground and you're, you know, let's say you're running and you're, you see the person disappearing into the distance you're trying to keep up with, you can even give up way, way, way too quickly because actually you've set unrealistic expectations of yourself. Maybe you're just not that good a runner. And so I have been concerned um, for a few years now that this mantra of let's do this, let's achieve this um, and being focused on targets has kind of distracted a bit from the kind of key characteristics of, of resilience that people are going to need. Because when we think about most of us who are in the professional world right now, let's say we've got another 20, 30, 40 years left in, in, in whatever profession we're in. The carbon budget that we're going to burn through is going to be only a relatively short time of that career. And the rest of the time, we're going to be spent dealing with the impact of the changes. Many parts of the world already dealing with huge stress issues and extreme weather events. And so in the short term, it, it looks like it's, it hasn't worked. But I think the resilience that we need is to play the long game, right? So we need to think, okay, how do I build up my personal resilience to, to kind of keep going in this direction and have this passion for the next 20, 30, 40 years to make the the changes that I can influence, right? And, you know, not all of us have, are CEOs, not all of us have massive influence, but I would say that that personal resilience to kind of do the right thing and keep going no matter what has been lacking in the in the message a little bit. And that's going to be something I think when there's, perhaps a fallout from when we've not achieved what we wanted to achieve. What do we do then? And then it becomes a case of, I think we'll see a bit of a, a potential blame game where who, 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 who did what, who, who, who's let us down potentially. But then hopefully within that we'll be reborn a new, a new kind of philosophy of, okay, well, this is the world we're living in now and we are going to overshoot let's work to protect vulnerable people vulnerable communities and almost reinvent business uh in a in a new environment i think that's what we're going to be facing is a lot of the assumptions of stability and being able to travel easily around the world and do business in lots of different countries and have relatively low impact of um living in in various places is going to have to be reassessed and so that aspect of resilience will become much more to the fore for every business. I think that is hopefully going to be a new um, kind of philosophy of trying to consider how you how do you kind of 
brace yourself for these shocks and stresses that are just going to be a regular part of life from now on. And how do we ensure that we're, we don't get into a defeatist mentality and we throw our hands up in the air and say it's all over, but actually we focus on, the, on bringing hope and, and positive change to people, uh, even if we've not achieved the, the, the big goals that we've set ourselves. So I think it's going to, it's going to be a real challenge, but thankfully there's lots of people out there who are already demonstrating this kind of leadership. And there's a lot of people, both young and old, who are massive inspirations to me. I think someone said once that if they look at the data, they get depressed, but if they look at the people, they get hope. Uh, And I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. I wanted to pick up on this point you made earlier, Martin, about you know, we've been given this data, there was quite an effort to, I feel, get the story out there, get more people talking about, and in that, perhaps we lost some of the richness of the storytelling that was needed. So what we're kind of reduced to and left with this kind of doom and gloom, everything's going to be awful no matter what you do, and we're seeing the fatigue from that already before we've even started down the line of trying to help ourselves. And, and it's coming back to this point you made about people being told a story that if you if you can keep to 1.5, everything's going to be grand and all the problems will be solved. That's not the case, even if we stick to 1.5, which, you know, it doesn't seem very possible at this point in time. But if we somehow manage that, there's still impacts that are locked into the system. Right. And we're going to have to be dealing with that no matter what we do. So what role do you think individual leaders and businesses have when it comes to the storytelling yeah i think there's a key role really for leaders around reframing the the business uh kind of the three p's you know the people planet profit i think and how do we communicate this in a way that demonstrates that we we're really balancing these you know i think of some ceos who They've started to become a bit more vulnerable and say, you know, we, we know we want to do this and we're setting these ambitious targets, but we don't know how we're going to get there. And I think that degree of vulnerability and openness um, is, is scary to, to CEOs and, and boards. But I think because of the level of uncertainty we're entering into, some, there needs to be some degree of honesty and candor to say, actually, we're trying to be prepared. We're trying to do the right thing, but actually... We don't quite know what the impact's going to be. So I think that's probably the first thing that you know I would be looking for from storytelling or messaging, you know, in terms of okay, that kind of reality testing, you know, so what are the impacts and challenges that our business could face and bringing that up as even a discussion. You know, I think we learned from COVID the importance of use, you know, using what if questions, you know, what if this does happen? So I think there is a real opportunity for businesses to say right we want to change the mantra here we want to change the dynamic and we want to be on the front foot about embracing some of the changes that are coming i think the second thing is then trying to find a way of storytelling some of the changes that are already happening i mean one of the things that we've been thinking about resilience first and shazra you've been involved in this as well is you know how do you bring the climate resilience aspects of businesses that what they're doing already to the forefront. So in the past, we might have thought of it as corporate social responsibility or just being a good business in a community. But I think we need to we need to kind of reframe these um, activities and see them as part of building, let's say, community cohesion or community connectedness. 
In fact, when I'm listening to a book at the moment on audiobook, um, The Resilience Dividend, and it's really interesting. Uh, the author talks about some disasters that have happened, and it's been local community clubs that have, have stepped in and been a m- massive impact in helping communities recover. I think there's a lot of businesses that they they have people in local offices that are already part of the community, and how could they build kind of the connections between these various offices to kind of support them and give them the tools and communications that they need to get the message out of what they're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like there's real opportunity for businesses to to think about, you know, their physical infrastructure in a different way, not just like in real estate in terms of what their carbon emissions are and how much does it cost and how long are their rental leases, but what are the physical risks that we're facing in this environment and what would happen if there was a flood um, and how would our building cope and would our building be a place where people would come to for safety or would they fly away from? And if if they're going to come to it for safety, would we be willing to take in other people who don't work there? If if it was a really good modern building with really good flood protection or wind protection, you know, would we be willing to drop security measures for for that day and just take people in and act as a bit of a, a refuge. So I'm hearing that this idea that businesses have had in the past of being somehow separate from the people and the world. You know, businesses are a separate thing. They they operate in their own world, and the only connection they have is to customers or shareholders. What I'm hearing from you is that businesses need to start putting people at the heart of everything they do, and they need to start centering themselves in the communities within which they operate. You know, you're kind of talking about stakeholder management there and, you know, shareholders and stakeholders. And we've, I guess in business, we've kind of seen these as groups of people to be managed rather than a discrete group of people to be served. Um, You know, we have customers who buy things from us, uh, consumers who purchase our products, but actually we've not really been thinking about the people who are touched by our physical infrastructure, apart from if we're polluting the rivers or something like that. So it's always been, you know, it's been kind of negative the way we've been thinking about it. And I think what what the whole climate resilience brings is, okay, how, how can our buildings, our digital infrastructure, our physical infrastructure be seen as, you know, highways and roads of refuge for, for people in, in those environments? And so I think businesses, I think they are starting to think that way, but it's really not being done at the corporate level. And I think that's that's going to be the challenge uh, for companies. But also seeing it as, okay, how could we in, you know, tap into some of the needs uh, of, of people in the local community to add new services and products to what, what we do already? Some companies you know, that are thinking about these things will, will absolutely be entrepreneurial. And I think you know, kind of moving beyond this just kind of single dimension of customer selling to customers to thinking about, you know, if we're a, a bank, for example, with hundreds of offices around the world, and some of these are in cities that are prone to hurricanes, you know, what is what is our responsibility um, to our people, first of all? But then is there a responsibility to the community? And could we be more proactive um, in being a good neighbour? Uh, in those environments and use our really, you know, well-designed, well-engineered buildings for for something 
other than just housing people on computers if the need arose. But I think these some of these are quite kind of emerging things, Shadri, that we're kind of wrestling with and they happen in the heat of the moment in the midst of an emergency. And then we look back and we think, oh, wasn't that great? Um, and we tell stories about it, which is great. But it'd be fantastic to think if there's a way of systematizing this uh, approach and developing a bit of a playbook so companies can think, because not everyone's creative enough to be to say, oh, yeah, I, I can instantly see how my business would serve the community. So, Martin, one of the strands that's emerging out of what you're saying is the incredible complexity of what confronts leaders. And I want to take you back, if you're willing, to 2021, when you and I, through a project that was run by the Resilience Shift, and we had a series over six months of uh, fortnightly calls, you and I, where we were basically reflecting on some of the complexity of leading in a time of climate crisis. And I wonder whether you could say, just thinking back to those conversations and in light of what you've just said about the tremendous leap in perspective and sort of what's possible for me as a corporate leader and what's required of me as a corporate leader now, how do you look back on that? those conversations? Did they teach you anything? As Because in those days, you were a head of strategy at Wood PLC, so you were right in the thick of corporate leadership. Is there a, a secret ingredient there? I think for me personally, it was very much, it was a great learning experience, you know, articulating and working through all those things with you, Peter, and really getting to grips with some of the things I was thinking about, but wasn't really talking about, um, and seeing how it was changing me as well as changing the company. You know, I was definitely on a journey myself. I think I've, I've ended up seeing that there is a massive opportunity to get in front of some of these issues. But we, it, there needs to be leadership. And sometimes that leadership comes from the corporate world. Um, and sometimes it comes through forward-thinking NGOs and not-for-profits, like hopefully Resilience First is, to try and ask the right questions. I mean, one of my passions is really, what are the, what are the questions that should be on the board and the C-suite? You know, what are the things they should be talking about? And I think they should be talking about exactly what we're wrestling with here is, what is our responsibility in an age of climate crisis and the changes that are coming, and what where is the growth and opportunities for renewing our business model in the coming decades? If we can get those two things on the topic uh, and conversation and agenda for boards in the in the coming years, I think we'll be doing a great job. Martin, out of that six months of conversation you and I had, you might remember that I harvested a whole raft of insights that uh, you came up with in those many conversations. And uh, I just want to play back one particularly to you, which I think relates to what we're talking about here, which was you were talking about, you know, first of all, the difficulty of setting targets and, and getting your leadership team to agree to go in a particular direction. But then I thought very interestingly, you said, then the task is to adapt and adapt and adapt as you go, learning fast, and you came up with this lovely line, think Swiss army knife rather than BMW. And I, I just wonder, I've often thought about that little comparison. And I just wonder whether now that you're seriously in the resilience business, whether that is still something you would offer to business leaders. 
It's really interesting thinking back to those days and uh, the the kind of the, the journey that I, I was on and the journey the company was on. And then now becoming much more familiar with the world of resilience. And I think it is it's absolutely valid and true, that statement uh, still. I think what I'm learning about resilience uh, is, you know, I read this book, uh, Anti-Fragile by Nicholas uh, Taleb and... Uh, one thing he talks about there is when things are under stress, there are some things that actually grow weaker through the experience. And there are other things that actually become stronger through the experience. And, you know, there's this idea of adaptive capacity. So when we think of the experience of the last few years, some individuals and leaders have come through it and they're now much stronger because of that. But a lot of people have become more fragile. And society as a whole, some people would argue, has perhaps become more fragile. And so this this idea of, you know, it's not just being robust, which is, you know, strong to withstand pressure. Uh, it's not just being resilient to kind of keep going and be able to get back up again and keep going. But it's actually that idea of adapting and changing and growing so that all your experiences, if we think individually, all your experiences as a leader and a person, you take them with you and you're able to integrate those into your into your story, into your capabilities and skills and keep asking the, what can I learn from this and how can I take it and take the positives from this? And in some ways, my own journey the last couple of years has been a little bit like that. And you know, you kind of go through these ups and downs and twists and turns in your career and you think, okay, what can I learn? What am I meant to be? You know, what muscle am I working on? You know, and we grow stronger through these things. What I've learned is we grow stronger if we have a social support around us, of friends and family and people we can speak to. And often I think that's what differentiates people who are able to adapt from those who cannot. And I think sometimes that's perhaps the challenge for senior leaders is whether they really have those trusted friends and, and trusted uh, people they can speak to and get a, a very honest answer, which sometimes in the hierarchy of corporates, it can be challenging to get that very honest feedback of what they're doing well and what they could do better and and having that kind of frank discussion. So yeah, I, I definitely um, stand by that, Peter. And uh, if anything, I think I've, I've only learned more about what it means to adapt through doing this role, um, because I've become much more aware of all, a lot of the vulnerabilities that business of, businesses are facing. So if I were to just take you back just to that BMW Swiss Army knife comparison, listening to you now, um, um, I just want to check my picture that's emerging is that a BMW is strong, beautifully made, but you're worried that if it gets scratched, you really don't want your BMW to get scratched, let alone in, a, in any kind of a bump. Whereas a Swiss Army knife, frankly, it doesn't matter where it falls or how it gets stood on. And you, and my experience of Swiss Army knives is you never actually know all of the functions until you need one. And you say, good Lord, is that what that's for? Which I think matches what you're talking about in terms of learning and learning through having to adapt and realizing what's available to you and drawing on your network and so on. Exactly. Martin, I think I'd like to pick up there because you've been talking about this adaptive capacity in, in, in the context of 
individuals, right? Individual leaders. And I just want to go down that road a bit more because we've so far had a really good discussion on businesses and how businesses respond to and their role in society. But what's the role of the individual really in influencing positive change within and through an organization? And really, how do individuals who may already have that adaptive capacity and that kind of sense of purpose, how do they get that thinking across corporates, particularly larger corporates, which we know are notoriously averse to any kind of change? Yeah, thanks, Hazri. A lot of it's context dependent for people. We all have influence at various levels. If I think of the people who I've worked with, who I've been inspired by, they all had different areas of responsibility, but I think they each had something in common that they, they were very passionate about what they believed in. And the ones that were most impactful, and I like to think I'm in this category, um, but the, the ones that were most impactful were the ones who were able to hold it for the right moment. So, you know, how do you create change in a, in a big company? You know, there's obviously a culture which predominates and consumes everything and resists change. You know, there's a lot of inertia. But there are moments when the, you know, the clouds part, the sun shines and you're in the spotlight and you have a, you know, you have an opportunity to either speak to speak one to one with a senior person or ask a very good question or you have eight minutes on a platform and you have a decision to make, you know, how much of myself do I bring to this particular moment to open up? And um, how much am I prepared to put myself on the line and my career on the line for something I'm very passionate about? I think as an individual within a big company, you know, there's a lot of ways of working and norms and hierarchy and expectations. And I think there are opportunities to stamp your, your kind of character and your passions on a company. I think part of the challenge is, you know, holding it in. So I'm not saying I've got the answer because I kind of, I think I probably waited about seven years or eight years for my moment to speak truth to power. But I did see a big impact from that um, moment. But I think I'd reached a point where I was prepared to basically be fired if if they didn't like what I was saying. I'd reached that point in my career. And that was the trade-off I was prepared to make. But I said it, I hopefully said it in a way that was gentle and but firm, um, not insulting, but uh, clear. And so if you're bringing that to work and that is part of who you are, then those moments of um, opportunity become really, really, really critical and important. Would you say that moment was a defining point in your journey to leadership? And do you think other leaders have similar experiences? It was definitely a defining moment. I remember vividly, I had eight minutes on the platform with the top 200 leaders in Wood to talk about the energy transition. And I'd written this, this speech about crossing the Rubicon and the you know 411 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere and how we, you know, we'd crossed it already and how basically telling them that we were all we were all responsible for this and we all had a responsibility to put it right. Um so I really I did lay it out there. And I remember the night before, you know, when I was finishing it thinking this could go one of two ways. It could be very 
powerful or it could be like my last day <laughs> my last day here and uh, I thought you know what actually it's the right thing to do and it was a defining moment I don't know for other people Shazri if that's been a similar thing I think in my experience listening to people it does seem to be like uh, an epiphany moment where people realize oh wow this is really happening and a great example is my boss that year said to me in my appraisal, you've taken this from being something, I think the way he said it was, it's like it's gone from working for my career to working for my kids and and making changes for my kids through my career. And that was his, his kind of epiphany was, okay, you know, this is about providing a better world for my kids, not just getting more and more senior and more and more money in the company. And so, yeah, it was a special moment and uh, I'm glad I took that opportunity, but I had to wait quite a while to, to, to get it in the end. And you're here to tell the tale. Well done. <laughs> yes. Now, as Executive Director of Resilience First, is that advice you would give to the leaders we talk to and that are our members? Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing there's like a, a really interesting dynamic with, you know, we talked right at the beginning of the discussion about targets, right? And that sense of urgency that needs to be instilled into people. And so the interesting thing with resilience and the people that are, you know, the members that we have is we need that urgency to drive action, but we also need that kind of constant prepare, you know, preparedness of the mind and the organization. And so I think, yeah, I would I would say that to our members to to be the person who is able to bring that that kind of reality to an organization and balance. You know, you don't want to be the doom the doomsayer um, all the time. I think if that's all you ever do, people become numb to it. And so you need to balance that kind of ability to to wake up with a steady determination. If if you want to drive change in your company you need to be the change in your company right you need to do it yourself not just tell other people to do it and so i think there's that steady determination to make a difference that we have to balance with putting i think of it kind of like a flare you know there is a there is a moment to pull the trigger and put the flare in the sky and say this is what's happening everyone but you can't be doing that every day um you have to do your job really really well and when the moment comes you take it and you you speak up and yeah, hopefully you can make a difference. So what gives you most hope in the face of all of these multitude and complex crises we face and are about to face? I think the thing that really encourages me, Shazri, is the global momentum uh, around this, that people of all ages and all nationalities and gender, industry, when I look at what people are, are doing and how passionate we all are, then I think, you know, I know that this is a this is an irreversible change, this journey that we're on to make the world a sustainable and resilient place. You know, there's so many people who are making a difference and eventually time will tell, you know, that eventually people will retire and new people will join and there'll be a changing of the guard. And, you know, the, the young people and the younger people, they will bring their fresh ideas and fresh thinking. And so I think 
but I see is definitely heading in the right direction as a society, as a global society. I think we will we will get to a place where we're starting and building companies that are giving back more than they take from people and communities that will find you know cities that are balancing you know their consumption with their regeneration and people who are seeking a career but also seeking to make a difference you know and and I think that you know as I was growing up the UK was obsessed with materialism and consumerism and I think people are becoming more appreciative of the fact that that is we have gone too far with materialism and that you know there is this realization of you know meaningful work at, at fair pay and if I can it's actually better to make a difference than get a bigger title I think you know people are starting to see that and and I, that gives me a lot of hope for the future. Martin what a lovely point at which to draw this to a close and I think I, I just want to salute your courage. It seemed that the word courage was coming up to me quite a lot during our conversation as a core requirement of leaders in this era. And you have demonstrated it. Patience for the seven years and then extreme courage in those eight minutes. And in other ways too, as I know, as I know from our many conversations. So I just want to thank you very much for your thoughts today. Thank you, Peter and Shazra. It's been a, a lovely discussion and I've really appreciated it. And thank you for listening. This is the first in a series of conversations we'll be having on this topic. So please subscribe below and you'll be notified when our next interview is ready in a few days time. See you then. Bye.